name is Anna Ganey. I'm the executive chair of Canada 2020. I'm thrilled to be uh, with you all here tonight for this important conversation. It is wonderful to see so many of you out here tonight to hear from our special guest. I, I'm sure the concern um, is shared uh, with many of you here this evening. So uh, on that note, um, it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers this evening. Francis Haugen went uh, from a Facebook product manager to one of the world's best-known whistleblowers. Since then, she has really devoted her career to advocating for a reformed social media ecosystem that prioritizes well-being, trust, and the health of its users, as well as societies as a whole. So we're really thrilled, uh, Francis, to have you with us here tonight, along with our good friend, Supriya Devetti, Director of Policy Engagement uh, at the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy at McGill University. So welcome, uh, Supriya, and thank you for being here as well this evening. Uh, we will have 10 minutes or so at the end for questions, so uh, please uh, keep those in mind, and um, we'll look forward to hearing from you. But without further ado, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome to the stage uh, Supriya and um, Francis. Over to you. So, I mean, Francis, I think the first thing we should yeah. start off with, right, okay. is what attracted you to Facebook? Mm -hmm. um, what was your role? And then why did you leave? Hmm. Um, so I joined Facebook in the summer of 2019. And uh, like, let's all be honest, it's not like Facebook had the best reputation even in 2019. <laughs> um, and I had uh, intentionally not worked at Facebook since 2007. Right, so the first recurring event I went to there was in 2007. And the thing that tipped me over the line where I was like, okay, it is time to do at least a tour of duty, is uh, I had a friend uh, in 2016 who I viewed as like essential to my life. So I had gotten incredibly sick in my late 20s. I have celiacs, um, which is a, an allergy to gluten. And before you say like, gluten, isn't that like a hippie thing? Um, actually, gluten is life-threatening for, for a small selection of the population. And um, because I was an invincible 20-something, I let that go far enough that I ended up um, paralyzed beneath my knees. Um, and part of it also is this is just a very, I had a much worse case than usually happens, and it was like an odd set of circumstances. And so I went through a period of a couple of years where I had to relearn to walk. And I had to like put back on huge amounts of muscle because I, I, I got so malnourished before they caught it. And I had an assistant who became a very dear friend. So I hired him to like literally carry boxes for me so I could like go through a storage unit. And over a period of time, uh, he became like one of the most important people in my life because he rooted for me the entire way. So like I was frail enough that I needed someone to walk with me when I would like go out and walk a mile and three quarters. You know, I, he, he was into weightlifting, so he like taught me about macros and like eating protein and like, you know, did all the tedious stuff that is about getting your life back. And in 2016, I lost him to misinformation. So Bernie Sanders lost the primary to Hillary, and um, in, when he went online to go um, you know, commiserate with people, he got sucked down the rabbit hole of conspiratorial thinking about all the nefarious factors that had gone into Bernie losing. Like Bernie clearly was supposed to have won. What happened that could have like derailed this? And I remember the moment where I realized he was just completely gone, where like the internet had taken him from me because like we were exchanging these like thousand word emails back and forth on did George Soros run the world economy, right? Was he this nefarious actor that was like, you know, out to cause revolu violent revolutions? And he, he said to me like, do you re even read your own citations? 
Like these are all from the mainstream media. And it was this moment where like I, I, I felt like I had, I had no idea how to you know, graft him back onto our shared reality. And so in 2019, um, in January, as you can see that gap there, so I joined in May, I didn't join in June. I got this email in April, not April, in January, saying, hey, do you wanna come work at Facebook? And I, I had the opportunity of like going and looking up that email again when uh, the Wall Street Journal wrote my profile the first time, like when I came out. Um, and I was a little snarky with that recruiter. <laughs> I won't tell you exactly what I said, but the, the gist of it is like, I would only work at Facebook if I could work on misinformation. Right, like I, I had seen in 2016 the negligence they did. You know, I was an algorithmic expert at Pinterest and I was watching various features on Facebook being like, why is, what is going on? Like, why haven't you guys taken XYZ down? Um, why are you doing features that actively promote misinformation? And we could talk about what those are. Um, and she said, oh, you wanna work at Facebook? We have a job in misinformation for you. Um, and so I, I I agonized over it for a number of months because like, I, I wasn't really sure if it would make a difference. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to do that to myself. Like I assumed it was gonna be really hard. Um, a bunch of my friends said, if you take this job, you should assume the Chinese will compromise your phone, right? Because you're, you're actively countervailing state actors. Um, and in the end, I came to the conclusion that of all the things that have caused me pain in my life, losing this friend is easily in the top 10 most painful things that have ever happened to me. And if I could prevent that from happening to one other person, like it felt like it was worth at least putting two years into. And so that's why I joined Facebook. <laughs> Sorry. So what did you learn while you were there? Ah, um, so I, I, I think the most important like high level, you know, TLDR point is I, you know, I consider myself pretty well read. Uh, I showed up and I was just floored, right? Like I thought I knew what Facebook was, because I, and I, but I lived in the United States and I spoke English. And what I, I realized was um, the Facebook in the United States for English speakers is the cleanest, most sanitized version of Facebook in the world. And that there are a billion or a billion and a half people who, for whom Facebook is the internet around the world, often in some of the most vulnerable places in the world. That Facebook went into their countries and said, if you use our products, your data is free. If you use anything else, you're gonna have to pay for it yourself. And the internet converged, or the, those communities converged onto Facebook being the internet. That when you pull people now, there are a shockingly high number of countries in the world where 10% more people say, I use Facebook, than say, I use the internet. Like, like they're not even aware they're using the internet, right? Um, and I had no idea that Facebook, like Facebook in the United States, or maybe in Canada, you know, it ruins Thanksgiving. <laughs> like in, yeah. in, in other places, it causes civil war or it causes ethnic violence. And I had no idea that was happening. And as I was like becoming more aware of like what the issues in play were that were known inside the company, I was shocked at the level of um, helplessness that people had all these stories about why nothing could be done. And, and I think that's like the, the, the really the crux of it. The crux of it. So you mentioned that Facebook knew what was going on. Like, they, they know. Some parts of the company knew. But the company was not designed to disseminate that information. But I'm just very curious, and I feel like a lot of people here are probably pretty curious. Like, what was going through your head as you're blowing the whistle oh. on one of the most powerful yeah. and richest companies to have ever existed oh. on the planet? Like, you have to be. Yeah. 
You have to be a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, well, like you have to be very, you're not exactly a risk-averse person, I would imagine. Yeah. Like, what no, was... I'm not. I'm a data scientist. Yeah. I, like, I like probabilistic things, you know? But, um, I, I, um, you know, my, my partner and I, part of why we're happily married is we're both like, motorcycles, that sounds like a very bad idea, you know? Um, but but I, I think the way I look at it is, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm a Midwesterner. I'm from Iowa, you know, southern Canada. And, 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 um, <laughs> uh, and I'm not prone to exaggeration. Like I, I'm fair, I try to be very precise. Like I said, I'm a data scientist. And I, I, I say this without exaggeration. I genuinely think there are tens of millions of lives on the line in places like Africa or Southeast Asia, where we have seen two ethnic violence incidences so far. Like when I worked at Facebook, we'd only seen, when I joined Facebook, there'd only been one. Like, and we're starting to see a trend. And, and once Starlink rolls out over the next five years, we're gonna go from having that billion, billion and a half people having text and like low res image versions of Facebook to having videos. And we're already seeing ethnic violence caused by just even that level of access. And so when I looked at the whole situation, I, you know, my family lives to be very long, like, you know, my great-grandfather used to still walk to the University of Iowa and like write law papers in his 90s, right? So I think, I think on long time horizons, and I was like, if, if what I think is gonna happen comes to pass, I don't want to stay up at night in 30 years wondering what should I have done? Because like, I think very reasonable people can face a situation where they could save one life yeah. and say that's, but it would come at some cost to them and say, that's not my burden, I'm not picking that up. But if it was 10 people, you would you'd think a little bit longer. And if it was 100, you'd think longer. And if it was 1,000, you'd think longer. And 10 million people or 20 million people is a lot of people. Yeah. And so by the time I came to the conclusion that Facebook could not heal itself, like they dissolved the part of the company that was responsible for these kinds of problems, like it, there's no consequence they could have done to me that would have like out been worse. Like if I had gone to jail for four years, like let's say hypothetically they had done that, that's not as bad as laying up at night for 50 years wondering you. if 10 million people are dead because you didn't do something. The system will not change unless we change the incentives around the system. You know, you mentioned you're American. One of the simultaneous blessings Sorry, you know, and curses. I know we, we do a lot. Yeah, of Canada is our proximity to the United States. Yeah. And a lot of our own discourse and debate is mm -hmm. very much influenced by what's happening south of the border. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to ignore, I think, to our peril, a lot of what is happening in other countries. Mm. And so there are governance frameworks that are being, you know, introduced in other parts of the world, uh, the EU and the UK, for example. Mm -hmm. Can you help, I guess, for a Canadian audience, tell us what's been going on in the EU and the UK? Because we're so focused on, like, yeah. the United States and absolutist <laughs> sort of conceptions of First Amendment stuff, even though mm -hmm. it doesn't really apply here. But, you know, yeah. I digress. Like, what's going on sure. in the rest of the world? Uh, you guys, you have the misfortune of all the lobbyists that work in the United States for Facebook also speak English and therefore can talk to Canadian politicians as well. And so when we think of like what can be done, we often think about it in the frame of reference that was presented to us by tech companies. So the big tech companies have spent hundreds of millions of dollars presenting a false choice. They've said, you know, you can, I, I totally get it. There's all these bad things that are happening, but you have to choose between your safety and freedom of speech. Like that's the only choice you get to make. And the thing that I'm, I'm really glad that the European Union did was they talked to a lot of people who are experts in the space and realized there's actually like a, a totally different you know, third option. 
which is, you know, yes, you can focus on content. I think it's short, I don't think it works very well. We can have a conversation on why. Or you can take a step back and say, hey, you know, this is an industry like any other industry. Like every for-profit industry works based on incentives. Right now, that system is opaque to us. You know, every similarly powerful industry, we have the ability to take those products apart. We have the ability to go in and interview the factory workers. We can measure the pollutants that are coming out of the smokestack or into the water. We can understand where the minerals came from that we were used to put it together and get kind of a sense of like what might be happening. But when it comes to social media or, or any of the, the big tech platforms, the interesting decisions happen behind a curtain. They happen on a data center. What if we took apart some of those incentives? You know, what if we had mandated transparency? What if companies had to disclose the risks they knew about? And what if they had to actually give us plans on like, this is how we could be making progress on this. And here's enough data that you can know that we're actually in good faith trying to move this forward. Like, what if we went that way? That's like a much longer answer than like freedom versus like security. But the European Union wrote a very, very interesting bill called the Digital Services Act that basically laid out that idea, the idea that, that we should be treating social media like we do any other industry. They should have to give us enough data, enough transparency that we could actually have a democratic process around it. And we need to be setting up incentives where there's a motivation to keep working on these problems. Right now, the only thing that these companies have to report out to us is their financials. You know, how many users do they have? How many ads did you look at the last month? How many dollars came in from looking at those ads? They don't have to report the externalities of how they got those things. So I think that's part of what is so exciting about where Europe's going. They're making us actually admit to the externalities that drove those profits. Yeah, and I mean, what you're saying makes sense, right? Like a consumer-facing product should have to have safety standards, mm. like anything else. Um, well, I so, think the, the word that you said there essentially is product. Yeah. Like they want to say, like, we're not a product, we're a platform. Right. And so safety standards don't apply to us. Of course not. Yeah, Why would they? Not. Why yeah. would they? Yeah. Um, are there any red lines on what Canada shouldn't do? Like, mm. are there any models that are like, ooh, yeah. let's stay away from that? Yeah. So I think there's um, one of the challenges here. So part of why the platforms have leaned in on this idea of like, let's talk about this little sliver of what's possible, which is content moderation. Part of why they've leaned in on this is it's, it seems obvious, right? So, so when we look at these products, the thing that we perceive the product to be is the content on our phone. So when we see something that's you know, out there, we're like, hey, that shouldn't be on my phone. So that's a content-oriented approach. The struggle with that is it doesn't really map to what's possible with technology today or likely any technology in the next 20 years. So when I say this piece of content is violence inciting, it takes a lot of contextual knowledge to understand that these words and these symbols and this image, the significance of it is that it's provoking you to anger. Yeah. Or if it's hate speech, it's pro provoking division. Right now, we have a trade-off that we always have to do when we're trying to train an AI to deal with these problems. So we have to decide, do we want it to be really precise? You know, we never want to take down something that's good, accidentally. Or do we want it to have high recall? This is a direct trade-off. It's just like COVID testing. You know, do you want to have high precision or do you want to have high recall? Um, the trade-off on that, though, is actually quite severe, right? So when we look at Facebook's own documentation for hate speech, they say, we're taking down 3 to 5% of hate speech. And that's because if you want to have only a 5% or 10% error rate, that's all you can get with today's technology. 
And Facebook's own documentation said, when we focus on content, when we focus on can we identify the bad thing, we should assume at best, with a whole bunch of effort, we're going to get to 10 to 20%. So it makes you ask, OK, so if we can't do content, if content moderation isn't going to get us there, then what would? And part of why uh, Europe is focusing on these process-based interventions, transparency-based interventions, is Facebook, this, this wet, when I, the reason why I always make this, this gesture, it's like a wedge, this little tiny thing, beyond that it's to divide us, right? Content moderation divides us, is that there's a huge pie that they're not telling us about. And like, the reason I brought out 22,000 pages of disclosures is Facebook knows lots and lots of very small, subtle, sensible things about how to shift their products and make them much safer. But each one of those makes them a tiny bit less of profit. Can you get into that a little bit, though? I just oh, sure. feel like people would like, like some oh, of those sure. examples. Yeah. yeah. So some of it's really simple. It's like, you know, let's say you see something show up in your feed. Before you share that link, should you have to click on it? All right, seems really sensible. So it turns out if you require someone to click on that link, you get about 10 to 15% less misinformation. And that's because headlines are written to be provocative. They're written to provoke an action. But if you actually have to click through on that link and see what you're about to share, in some ways, you, you take more ownership of the information you spread. I always like to say that the solution to misinformation is having humans in the loop, like actually having systems where we're involved. Or I'll give you another example. Let's imagine you have a piece of content show up in your feed, and you go to click reshare. If that content came from more than friends of friends away from you, if all you do is say, hey, this is from more than friends of, friends of friends away from you. You don't know this person. You can still share this if you want, but you're going to have to copy and paste it. Right? So have you, have you been censored if you have to copy and paste? I think that's a little bit of an overstretch. <laughs> if you just do that, if you say, hey, you need to take ownership, like a teeny bit of ownership. You can even be anonymous, but you have to make a decision to share this. You can't just like you know instinctively hit reshare. That little moment of intentionality has the same impact on misinformation as the entire third-party fact-checking program. Right, these little subtle things. And that's because misinformation spreads differently than true information spreads. You know, misinformation gets to play in the entire field of ideas, and they only pick out the things that are the most seductive to us. It's like the French fries of that information. <laughs> right? Kale does not sell itself the same way the French fries, French fries does. And so of all the misinformation we see, it's this little tiny subset that goes on these hyper-viral, like 100 reshare long chains, huge fraction of it. So if all you do is sit there and say, let's think about design. Let's think about how we can ensure that humans are making choices, not just instinct making choices. It can have a huge impact on misinformation. So we heard the, the minister speak very passionately mm -hmm. um, in his remarks there. Um, and I think for a lot of Canadians, you know, we don't necessarily even know what really to expect in terms of like what legislation or framework would look mm -hmm. like. So for those on the left side of the political spectrum, and I am generalizing, no offense here to anybody, I, I find that often the thought is that once we introduce any sort of legislation, all and every negative interaction online is going to magically disappear. <laughs> Whereas those on the right yeah. side of the political yeah. spectrum seem to frame this as an inherent attack on you know our ability or our, our freedoms to you know say what we want, and any governance framework is like censorship as a as a result. Yeah, 
Can you help clarify, I guess, for sure. a Canadian audience what we should be expecting yeah. any governance framework to do or, or won't do? Because, sure. I mean, it's not yeah. going to solve all sorts yeah. of meanness on the internet. Oh, yeah, certainly not. Yeah. But, but I think it's this question of, like, right now, um, you know, uh, we have a system that disproportionately... So I always like to say we don't have a misinformation problem, right? Like, people have been saying crazy things at dinner parties for as long as we've had dinner parties. But the thing we do have today is a selective amplification problem. So if we went and like went through and said, what are the things that got to go hyperviral? A disproportionate share of those things are inflammatory. Right now, uh, like the things that we can expect to see are uh, every time you open the app, Facebook looks at 100,000 pieces of content for you. And the algorithm that chooses what you get to see of that 100,000 pieces of content has biases. So back in 2018, they made a very subtle change that had a radically divergent impact. So it used to be that when you opened your feed and they were trying to decide what to show you, they prioritized content that was predicted to keep you on the platform longer. They said, if we give you this, will you be on there another couple of minutes or another couple of seconds? And they switched in 2018 to say, will this get you to put comments, to put likes, to put reshares? You know, will it get engagement? And they made that choice for business reasons. You know, they were seeing a decline in content on these platforms. You know, this happens in natural life cycle of social platforms. Um, and they found the only thing they could do in a sustainable way to get people to make more content was for them to get more validation from their friends. That if you left comments and reshares and likes, it incentivized people to make more content. But within six months, they sent researchers into Europe in prep for the European Union parliamentary elections. And parties on the left and the right said over and over again, we know you changed the algorithm. It used to be we could put up a white paper on our agricultural policy. And it got, you know, it didn't get the most engagement, but we could see in the stats, people read it, people spend time with it. Now, if we don't put up extreme polarizing opinions, things that we know our constituents are not that keen on, we just get crickets. Right now, we are getting censored. Right? Like not all ideas are getting equal distribution. They are making choices on what get what they vote before we vote. The thing that will change is at least we'll understand how these platforms work. That we'll get to make meaningful choices on do I want to use this system or this system? Right. Because right now we're not getting nutritional labels. We have no idea if the reason why this is so sweet is because it has way more sugar in it. Right. One of the things, so I've known you for almost 24 hours now, yeah. I think. Yeah. I know, we're just best friends. Yeah. 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 Um, and I don't know if you know this, yeah. but I've seen this in the last yeah. 24 hours. When you speak about the need to protect kids online, mm -hmm. your face does change. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You, it's much more, yeah. you're, you're, you're very you know, focused on that idea. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the specific aspects uh, in terms sure. of protecting kids online um, that yeah. we can do, like very simple solutions? And I mean, you yeah. know, I have a, a young daughter. Mm -hmm. She's very, like, not, she's. How old is she? Three and a half. Oh, great age. And I, think, like, I think toddlers are great. They are. Yeah. yeah. Just on, like, three going on 13, yeah. though. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and, like, the thought Future of world her. leader. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and the thought of her, you know, scrolling on Instagram yeah. and getting an appetite suppressant lollipop yeah. that is being targeted to her as young as, like, eight, nine years yeah. old yeah. terrifies the bleep out of me. Yeah. Um, how do we go about ensuring that, like, our next crop of kids yeah. aren't subject to the same, you know, yeah. stuff that... 
I think, they are I right think now. Part of what animates me so much on the kids stuff is like uh, we have a mental health crisis right now, right? You look at it and um, like the the the, the rates on self-harm, the rates on eating disorders are skyrocketing. Like it's like a hockey stick up. And um, I think the thing that frustrates me so much is there's some really, really low hanging fruit that would probably have like the fatality rate from social media like tomorrow, right? It's things like um, how many of you have doom scrolled before are any of you willing to admit I have a doom scrolling I mean, all habit of them. sometimes? Like raise your hand. Yeah. You've all doom scrolled. My, yeah. my 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 husband is like an earlier night person than I am. Like he falls asleep much more easily, and I'll be like, I'm only going to look at my phone for ten minutes, and he's like, Right, you can look at your phone for ten minutes. Um, <laughs> but when you doom scroll, right, it's a self soothing gesture, right? And we you know we 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 know very clearly from research now they've done things like injecting posts into people's feeds. When you're doom scrolling, you're dissociating. Like you're not actually there. You're like trying to soothe yourself. And right now we have kids that are on Instagram at 2 a.m., right? They're sitting there and they're, they're trying to soothe themselves, but they're, you know, you made the contents actually rallying them up more. And, and we know, we've known for years that one of the top, top risks for kids for mental health is sleep deprivation. If I always like to say, um, we can look to China not for solutions. Like a lot of the ways they solve problems are way too paternalistic. They're too, um, they're authoritarian. But they definitely help us realize what conversations we need to have, like questions we need to ask. And if you were looking at TikTok, the equivalent of TikTok in China, if you're under 18, it cuts off at 10 o'clock. You can use it for 45 minutes a day. It shows you different content than if you're in Canada, Right? It's not you know, stuff that makes you want to be a funny dance influencer. It's like, have you ever thought about becoming a doctor? <laughs> that might make you happy. You know? it's, it's different kinds. It's a different experience. You know, we've known for 25 years. Like I worked at Google in the mid-2000s. And we cared about 10 millisecond changes to how fast Google was. Because if you made it tiny amounts slower, people used it less. How many of you have one of those things on your phone where like at 10 o'clock at night or 11, it's like, hey, have you thought about going to bed? Anyone? Anyone? So you might be a better person than me. I've already kind of outed that I'm bad at going to bed. Um, uh, when I see that, I just hit dismiss. Right? Like That's not an actual feature. Let's be honest here. That's, that's marketing. That's not a feature. Um, but we've known for 25 years that if you make the app a little bit slower, people use it less. So let's imagine a different world. So you have this kid. They were up doom scrolling at 2. The next day, they're in math class. It's 10 a.m. They're hungover on Instagram. They're crabby, right? We, we know sleep deprivation increases the chance of usage of uppers and downers. I don't think it's an accident. We have a nicotine epidemic amongst kids, right? Um, and this thing pops up and it says, when do you want to go to bed tonight? And they're like, I want to go to bed at 11. My mom says 10. I want to go to bed at 11. You know, they're a teenager. Imagine two hours before bedtime, it gets a little bit slower and a little bit slower a little bit slower and a little bit slower. You don't even notice it's getting slower. And around the bedtime that you picked, not that the government picked, not that your mom picked, but the time that you picked, you're like, oh, I'm kind of bored. I want to go to bed. That is a feature that designs for autonomy and dignity. Right? Or let's imagine uh, we had a feature where we said, hey, like we talked to pediatricians. We talked to pediatricians. Uh, we talked to child psychologists. The kids who are getting eating disorders know what's happening to them. They're like, I know. Going on Instagram makes this worse. I know the content I see on it makes it worse, but it follows me. Like even when I choose not to search for more things, I get fed up more of it. Imagine a world where people had the right to reset their algorithm. Right? We fall into we know that the algorithm is pushing people towards extreme topics. 
right? Like, like Mark Zuckerberg himself has said publicly, the problem with that way of picking out the content in your feed is that people are drawn to engage with more extreme content. You can take a brand new account and search for like healthy eating and just click on the content it gives you and come back the next day and do it again. And within a week or two, you've got striking shown pro-anorexia content. Right? The algorithm accelerates you. Imagine if a kid is struggling and Facebook said, hey, we noticed you're looking at a lot of depressing content. Do you want to keep looking at content like this? Imagine if a kid comes and says, I know I need to reset my algorithm. I've gone pulled into a hole. This happened to me when I was sick. I think for a couple years there, I watched a lot of dark stuff on Netflix because one day I got healthy enough where I was like, wow, Netflix is such a downer, right? And I moved in with some new people during COVID and I was like, oh, this is so fun. There's all these like cool stuff on Netflix. How, where was this all these years? Imagine if kids didn't have to choose between their future and their past, right? Like it's little things like this that make you realize what's happening right now. Like kids have to decide, do I want to refriend all my friends, give up all my old content, like the journal of my life, or do I want to get pulled further into this hole? That's the choice that kids have to choose today. It's like an impossible choice. There are all these little things that are not rocket science. Like that feature to slow down Instagram, it's live today if you're stealing content from Instagram. Like if you were downloading content from Instagram, this is exactly what would happen to you. We could launch this in two weeks if we wanted to. And we don't because that kid's staying, if they did that feature, parents would go, wait, Instagram's dangerous? Or wait, I, my kid, there's a problem? Like my kid's being sucked into something? I need, they, I, they need protection? We need transparency laws because right now we have platforms that are governed by stock prices not platforms that are governed by people. And so if we don't put in different systems of incentives, we are going to continue to see what we've seen so far. So if I'm a platform, mm -hmm. I would probably say to you, I don't know if there's a kid on the other end of the device. There's nothing <laughs> I can do. So do platforms actually know that the user on the other end you know, is an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, whatever it may be, versus like, you know, middle-aged suburban mom here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say that, you know, middle-aged suburban moms should be allowed to reset the model, too. I mean, right? so do I, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, or, like, if you want to go to bed, I think everyone, I think if you design for autonomy and dignity, this is one of those things where I was saying, like, we can look at the difference between China and how we might want to do things. If we design for autonomy and dignity, for the right of consumers to actually get to make choices, that actually helps everyone. Like, it's not about being paternalistic to adults. It's about allowing adults to get to make choices, too. But the secondary thing is they know who the kids are. <laughs> Um, so, so one of the things I want you guys not to fall into, and I, I'm already giving you a preview, this happened in California a month ago, is the platforms are going to come out and say, we would love to protect kids. We would love to, near and dear to our heart. But we have to check IDs, and we don't want to check IDs. I don't want to check IDs either. Checking IDs does not work. If anyone says to you, let's check IDs, you should say, are we not going to let people in countries other than Canada use our proper, like use these platforms? Right, China can check IDs because they don't let people outside of China talk on their platforms. There are lots of countries in the world that don't have computerized IDs. As long as you can VPN into that country and get an account, ID checking is not gonna work. But we know who the kids are. Some of it's really easy. You know, 10-year-olds are not very crafty. Like, they think they are. They think they're brilliant. But a lot of them say things like, I'm a fourth grader at Jones Elementary. Right? A lot of them do things like, you know, you, you, you annoyed me, like you, you, know, you, you got me in trouble in class. I'll report your account. 
So the little narcs. They're little narcs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, 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 you know, snitches get stitches until they start narking. Um, but uh, the, but there, there's a real thing, which is the platforms know how old you are. Like every single platform right now has an estimated age on their users because adults lie about their ages too. And they need to be able to sell you that 40th, uh, like 40th birthday vacation package. They need to be able to do that. And so they do an estimated age on everyone. And because enough of your friends don't lie, or they can intuit different things, like a third, third party sources of data, they can figure out using your behavior and all those other things. They know how old you are. There's no excuse. Like if you had sat down with a technologist and said, hey, I have this lever for reducing harm to kids. It's let's keep under 13 year olds or under 16 year olds off these platforms. They wouldn't go to let's check IDs. They'd say here's 10 or 15 different ways to find under 13 year olds. We have lots of options that if we could all sit at a table and talk about them, we'd be like, oh, that's acceptable. And so I think it's one of these things where uh, we know from the research that the danger, the most danger window, particularly for teenage girls, is between the ages of 10 and 13. Uh, I got corrected at, um, I went to a mom influencer conference, which I, at the time, was like, really? Do I really, I'm not even on book tour yet. Like, do I really need to go to a mom influencer conference? And it was revelatory. Like, I will go to that every year as long as I'm doing this work. Because they, they taught me a bunch of things. They were like, stop talking about 11-year-olds on Instagram. Talk about 8-year-olds on Instagram. And I was like, what? That's, that's the real problem. But 10 to 13, kids' brains change. Right, they start getting more dopamine receptors, they get more oxytocin receptors. Everyone in this room will never receive a compliment as good as a compliment a 12-year-old girl gets. Right? We're never gonna get that joy again because we just don't have brains that are in that state. But it means that social media is really dangerous because now both the validation is just so much more seductive and the shame is so much more painful. And unlike walking around junior high, where you can make a variety of choices that fortunately fell into the recesses of time when I was 12, when I was 13, like you should see how I dressed. Thank God none of you ever will. All of that stays with us forever now. Like, you can mock me. You can do something mean to me. I would and never. it just stays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we need to start asking, should for-profit companies in the United States get to govern the safety of Canadian kids? And we don't have to do that in an authoritarian way. We can do it in a way that is optimizing for agency and autonomy and dignity. But the market will not do that in isolation. And that's the fundamental question we need to be asking. So I mentioned our proximity to the US. Mm -hmm. And ever since the 2016 presidential election, I think everyone's much more aware of the concept of foreign interference, mm. the concepts of mm -hmm. both myths and disinformation but there's an obvious issue, issues, I should say, with getting governments to legislate, particularly in this area, right? Mm, like totally. you don't want 100%. governments to be the arbiter of what of is truth. and isn't true. Yeah, you don't want a losing electoral candidate to yeah. be able to say there was foreign interference, so that's why I lost. So how do governments work with platforms to cut down on dis and misinformation as sure. well as getting a part at, you know, state actors meddling in our internal affairs. Totally. So I, I don't think, you know, I know there's some things in flux right now about like what will go into the platform safety bill. I think it's a lot more constructive to talk about coordinated inauthentic behavior than to focus on misinformation, right? So one of the things I, I really, really want to get across is true facts 
can be as dangerous as lies, right? Like if you are a foreign influence operation and you come in and you want to divide Canadian society, you go and you study your problems. The reality is no society is perfect. You know, the way democracy works is we are always trying to build better and better societies, but there's always points of friction. And you send in coordinated actors. Those could be automated. They could be bots. They could be real live people. And you start disseminating messages that are targeted on our, our lines where we cleave. I worked on the threat intelligence team at Facebook. So the last eight months I was there, I worked on counterespionage. So we we're literally all day, all we did was looking at state actors weaponizing the platform. Right? You know, we were looking at Iran going and catfishing Israeli soldiers. We were watching China spy on Uyghurs all over the world. You know, state actors are, are weaponizing these platforms. I also watched the information operations team. Yeah. And uh, there is a huge amount of low-hanging fruit where we are currently asking private for-profit companies to do national security functions, right? To go in there and take down these coordinated networks. And there's an active incentive right now to not do a good job, right? The more networks you find, the more you have to report. You know, Facebook made a commitment that every influence operation they found, they would report publicly. So there's, an op there's a motivation to not find too many because it makes the problem look really bad. Um, I worked on a project on detection systems across threat intelligence. So this is counterterrorism, this is counter human trafficking, this is counter child exploitation, you know, counter threat intelligence. And I was shocked that the level of problem we were working on was trying to get even a baseline level of recidivism detection. Right, so we've already invested humans in taking down some violator for whatever the problem. We didn't even have good systems for finding people we'd already taken down, let alone proactive systems. So we knew we were working on the outer shell of a ball. We didn't know if that ball was the size of a baseball or a beach ball. And that's what happens when there's an active incentive not to know. But the secondary thing is on, when it comes to bots, we have a major, major problem in the business model, which is right now, if you have 1% less users, you can have your stock price go down 10%. One of the, the key fi findings from the Twitter whistleblower was that there were executives in Twitter who blocked efforts to take down bots because their, their bonuses were tied to the number of users Twitter had. Right now, we're letting tech platforms define what is a real user. And as a result, uh, you know, I've talked to people who, who do um, bot detection for, for site protection. You know, like how do we know that real users are using your site? Because sometimes they'll autom do automated takedowns. So they'll take down a website by flooding it with fake traffic. And you know, there are websites out there where 90% where of the users go away when you implement even basic systems. But that, that company looks a lot more profitable and a lot more successful than one that had an accurate number of users. And so there's really big opportunities to do basic things that will make our system safer without focusing on was this piece of content okay or that piece of content okay. Because those coordinated amplifications are where the real danger lies. So you're big into data and privacy. Mm -hmm. and Encryption. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I think everyone here has likely experienced mm -hmm. where they've been in conversation with a friend mm talking oh, about I think I I know, like I'll give you going. I'll give you an example I'll give you my own yeah. example so sure, sure, sure. I was talking to a friend about you know the Patagonia announcement yeah. and I was like oh, I need to upgrade my North Face to a Patagonia jacket yeah and then all of a sudden all of my targeted Instagram ads 
were for Patagonia puffers. Yeah. Um, it's a little so, weird, but like, what and you, is and you did this verbally or you did it in text? I mean, probably both. Probably I, both. Yeah, I, I talk yeah. a lot, so yeah. like, probably you know, you probably like, text yeah, you and, and then like yeah. probably yeah. I said it to my husband too yeah. or something. Um, but like, what exactly do the platforms know about us, mm -hmm. and how much data do they actually have mm. on us? Yeah. So if you did it in text, this is one of these things. Like even WhatsApp, which is ended encrypted, does topic modeling of you on device, so they can ask Facebook for certain kinds of ads. So that's not like they're sending back, they're not, they're not really breaking the veil of encryption because they're not sending your messages or, or, or telling the central server, but they are like modeling what you might be interested in and asking for ads and those things. But the, the usual one, I thought the place I thought you were going was people are very definitive. They're like, I had a conversation over coffee and we talked about this new uh, direct consumer service. Yeah. You know, they send you toothbrushes. And then I came home and like, I had ads for toothbrushes on Instagram. Um, and and uh, the, the answer to that one is like way less entertaining, but is in some ways also maybe more creepy, um, which is uh, I'm pretty, pretty sure. I don't know this for certain. I haven't looked through all the messenger code base. I haven't looked through the code base for Facebook. I'm almost certain they are not spying on you and like listening to your conversations and being like, ah, now is the time for the puffer jack. <laughs> right? I'm pretty sure. Because they're under a consent decree from, from the FTC. And if they, if they were doing that and not disclosing on their terms of service and they got caught and, and someone would report it eventually, um, they would get a huge fine. Like we're talking probably on the order of multiple billions of dollars given they are already in touchy water with, with the, the FTC. The, the real answer is, is slightly more depressing, which is you know if you're having a conversation with a friend, on average your friends are much more similar to you than to the general population. Yeah. And there's a huge amount of ads that get targeted on demographics, right? They are targeting people like you. And so if your friend can tell you about this cool new toothbrush shirt up, it's almost certain that you were already getting targeted for those ads, but we talked about the dissociation before. Right. You never noticed them. And now you're primed about like how wonderful this toothbrush was. I've been ignoring the Patagonia puffers this whole yeah. time. <laughs> um, but if you did it on text, like it's probably because you actually did get targeted with an ad. Oh, so it's okay. like one of these two things. Like if it was yeah. audio, I, I, I'm very skeptical. I, I'm guessing that you... It's like a, what is it, the Bader-Meinhof yeah. paradox or whatever. Yeah. Um, but if it, it was over text, yeah, you're getting spied on all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, so you have a lot of experience in other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, You mean other tech companies or what, what do you mean other Oh, you mean literally other jurisdictions? Literally other jurisdictions. Oh, other jurisdictions like, I forgot. You know, last year has been a, there's a lot has happened in the last yeah, year. Yeah, no, that's yeah, fair. So, um, but, you know, you've, speak, you've spoken yeah. to many other governments mm -hmm. about this issue. And in terms of how big tech, I'm using mm. that in air quotes almost, yeah. right? But how they tend to frame a lot of this or how yeah. they tend to lobby against this, how they tend to mm -hmm. demonize any sort of attempt of a governance framework as like an attack on free speech, an attack on our yeah. core values. What can Canadians sort of prime ourselves to expect as sure. this debate sort of rolls out here? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're already sort of having it, but you know yeah. what I mean? When it becomes more formal, what, what what should we be on the lookout for? I guess. Well, I mean, they they know they know the hot button is always censorship, right? Like like part of why I'm always like I don't think it's constructive to actually talk about misinformation anymore. Like the word misinformation has been politicized so much um, uh, that we really have to pull it back on transparency, right? Because because you know the government doesn't tell you what you can put in your mouth. It has standards on like, was it made in a clean way? But it doesn't say like, should you have Oreos or should you have kale? 
But it does say you deserve to get to make that choice. You get to be have informed consent. You know, I think we have to pull it back on how do we anchor the conversation in autonomy and dignity, like real choices, because the platforms are going to come out and say the government is it wants to control you. The government wants to choose what you what you can see. And we I think we need to go out way in advance and say no 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 no. You deserve to get to know what they're doing behind the scenes. Like they're doing content moderation right now. You have no idea who they're taking down. What you know they say we we um, we 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 don't distribute political content as much anymore. See, we're we're safe. What counts as political? How do we know that this idea is political and that they consider this political and that one not? Or like a novel idea, like extreme ideas that are new don't get caught yet, so they get distributed, but everything else gets caught. Don't you wish you knew what was going on? Yes. And I think the secondary thing is you know you know we have things like school boards because people really care about their schools. They want to have input into their schools. People like to have the ability to influence things they really care about. And people really care about social media because they're emotionally attached to it. It's their friends and their family. And we should expect them to come out and say, the government is trying to stop what you can see. And when you come out practically and say, don't you wish you could influence social media? Like, don't you wish you could know what was happening to your content on social media? You know, the Facebook oversight board can't do anything. Like literally, it's out of scope. They, they claimed the name so no one else can really be the oversight board. But, but we currently have no oversight. We have no ability to influence these processes. And so I think that's the, the opportunity. We don't have much time left, so I'm hoping to sneak in these two questions. Okay. Um, but just in terms of, are you, like, are you hopeful for the future? Because it's very mm -hmm. easy to be in the thick of this and feel despair. Yeah, yeah. and get yeah. depressed and yeah. think of like the dystopian sort sure. of you know future in which we're staring at a screen yeah. and like we're not choosing what we're watching but it's telling us what we should watch. Are you glass half empty or glass half full? Like it's very easy to be glass half empty yeah. I'd imagine, but so I I, I really want to make t-shirts that say fatalism is a sign that someone is trying to steal your power. Right? Like if you feel fatalism, like you're like, there's no hope. That's a lot to fit on a t-shirt. I, I know, but <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure I can hire like 20 designers on okay. Fiverr, and yeah. then one of them will come up with something good. Okay. Right? Um, but uh, and, you know, I, I think there's this thing of, this has happened every time before. Right? It feels, it feels overwhelming, and it feels like apocalyptic, um, because it's our problem to solve. Right? So this, this happened with newspapers. You know, we had literally yellow journalism. Like we had whole wars fought over misinformation. Uh, radio did this, like it changed people's relationship with information and their leaders because they had these like intimate relationships for the first time. And you're able to actually get people to do a lot more things if you can harness that level of emotion. Um, but every time before we figured out ways forward, right? We, we founded journalism schools, we invested in public media, we started having transparency and disclosure, disclosure rules. It feels overwhelming because this is our time to shine. Right? We have to navigate our way out of it. And it might get a lot worse before it gets better. But we have done this every single time before. And so when people are like, this is just too much, you know, this is too different in all these different ways, if you went back in time and looked at the exact same context, it looked really, really profoundly different. And so it's one of these things where we can take solace from history. But the difference in all these past times is we had to act. Like we take for granted we live in the world we live in today is the way it has always been. But it's this way because people did the work. You know, our ancestors invested in democracy, so we get democracy. 
And the way we give democracy to the next generation is we do the work. And so I have a lot of faith that things are possible. And even if we don't get it next year and we have to do it, try again in another couple of years, at some point we're gonna figure it out. And so I'm gonna keep pushing and you might have to listen to me again in a couple of years, but ideally we'd get it done sooner and then we can do something more interesting in the future. Yeah. I think we'll go to audience questions. Carolyn's got a mic there. Sure, folks, anybody who has a question. Hi there, thank you very much. Um, one of the many points you made was rather than control the content, control the incentives. I can really visualize the negative incentives. Well, actually, the corporations are not necessarily evil geniuses. They are amoral rather than immoral, mm -hmm. having worked for many. And um, my, my sense is, they kind of follow the money. Mm -hmm. And you're looking to get more users, you're looking to engage people. Anger is kind of the, the go-to. So I'm having difficulty visualizing what mm -hmm. the positive, the, the incentives for, I guess what I, you know, sure. rather arbitrarily think yeah. of as the positive behaviors, you know, because you can do transparency, but people actually have to, like you can't make a horse you can lead a horse to water. You can't make a drink. You can give all that information. Doesn't necessarily mean people en will engage with it, or that the mm -hmm. corporation or the platform yeah. will make that happen. So I guess my sure. long-winded question is: What do these positive incentives look like? We yeah. have a clear idea of the negative mm -hmm. ones. So, so you know, transparency. It sounds you're like, well, how would transparency actually change things? So uh, we've seen one advertiser boycott that was successful to date. It was called Stop Hate for Profit. They got a whole bunch. Of Fortune 500 companies to pull their ads for about a month, and Facebook literally came out and said, "We solved hate speech. You can advertise again." And like because there was no independent ruler, there was no way to assess the validity of their claims. They could see the long list of things where they're like, "We took down all these accounts. Look at everything we did. We did so much." Um, you know, if all you guys did was pass a law that said every week, Facebook, you have to publish a feed of a random set of 10,000 posts off of Facebook, random set. And if a post is viewed more often, like a post that's viewed a million times, it's gonna be a million times as likely as a post that was viewed once. You have to put out this feed. Just, it's, like a, it's like a little tiny telescope, in a representative sample of what's on Facebook. I guarantee you there would be advertiser boycotts immediately. Like people would write in and say, there's too much anti-Semitism that's being spread. There's too much violence, violence glorifying or like the stuff that's getting the most reach like, or do a true random sample and then that sample so we can see what is Facebook choosing to distribute more. You would start to see pressure. You would see things like, um, one of the things that's so smart about that little tiny wedge that they focus on, so that's content moderation. It's like, oh, you have to choose safety or freedom, is that no one will march with a placard saying, please censor me more, right? No one will. But if you came in there and said, hey, this is what's actually getting distributed, so here's a random sample that was produced, and here's what's getting distributed. People would begin to say, hey, like we want more content that, that you know, we want a, a greater variety of opinions. Like we're very monoculture right now. Um, and so there's, a, I, I, I'm founding a nonprofit. It's called Beyond the Screen. Right now we are limited to what we see on our screens. And we're focusing on what we call the ecosystem of accountability and building capacity there. So there's a huge number of investors that want to get involved so it's not just ESG funds, like environmental, societal, good governance investing. 
though there is interest there. It's also things like mutual funds that say, hey, Facebook fell in valuation by 60% since you started, since the first article came out. Like there's liabilities hiding in these companies that we don't know how to coach them on. Like we don't know how to, like if, if, if anyone had been involved but Facebook in guiding Facebook, we would have something closer to the Facebook of 2008. And think of all the people who've quit Facebook since 2008 in the United States and Canada, right? They over-optimized on short-term profitability and they lost users. And so there's a lot of these things where there's opportunities for accountability once you can actually see what's going on. Hi there. My question kind of comes from a period of time where I think right now the way social media is, you can tell there is a shift on how they want to disseminate information and even with the idea of meta coming out. I kind of wanted your opinion on how we have companies like Facebook saying, hey, we're moving more towards, you know, mm -hmm more entertainment video type and they're saying you know what we're not going to do news anymore but then you have a, a place like in a lot of African countries such as South Africa where a lot of the information that are in you know more poverty-stricken places are simply Facebook so what is your opinion on that and that idea do you think it's more performative mm. do you think it's actually a reality that something like meta and how they're using Instagram in a more TikTok fashion now is mm. an actual plausible idea or is mm. it just again a performative action there? So I want to be real clear, when Facebook says things that we're like, we're not distributing news, they have to figure out which things are news and which things aren't. So, so the, the, most of the, the buzz on the internet when I came out, like the conspiratorial buzz, was that Francis is a liberal dark horse for censorship. <laughs> and literally, the point of my Senate testimony was when we talk about content moderation, when we talk about like what content is getting distributed, it distracts us from things that would actually be linguistically equitable. Right, that, that when Facebook goes in there and says, we're not gonna show news in the United States or Canada, they're only doing it for, for languages they support. So there's lots and lots of languages spoken in the United States where it's exactly as dangerous as it was before. Right, it's the raw version of Facebook, the raw, most dangerous version of Facebook. Um, when you go into countries in Africa, you know, Ethiopia has 120 million people. They have 95 dialects. They fall into six major language families. And at the height of the violence in Ethiopia, Facebook did any kind of, of content-based intervention in two of those six language families. And that was when people were dying of misinformation spread on Facebook. And so in that way, I do think it's performative, right? Like their strategies don't scale to 4,000 or 5,000 languages. I think the larger question is with the, or so with the metaverse, you have different sets of problems. So in the metaverse, I always like to say when we think about social software and social problems, we should think of a coffee, mm -hmm. a dinner party, a cocktail party, a church parish, a conference, a university, and that's about, that's the scales of reference, right? We have human institutions and rituals on how we disseminate and govern information at those different scales. If we have coffee and you say something crazy, I can be like, so tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> why, do you, why do you think that's true? You know, we can have a conversation on it. Good speech can answer bad speech. Um, in the metaverse, there are many fewer dysfunctional uh, information structures. So like a, a telegram group that's anonymous and has half a million members is about as dangerous as you get, right? Because it's an end-to-end encrypted, it's mass blasting out information. Um, in the metaverse, they're moving more towards smaller human scale types of communication but you start having problems like they're not building in the idea that there's going to be people who already are there who will sit and whisper racial slurs at you. And you don't know which of the 40 people in this room are whispering things at you or, or you don't know who is, is, is um, 
sexually harassing you. So you have different kinds of problems. Misinformation is less of one. Um, but I think the thing that Facebook is repeating is they're, they're not designing for safety up front. They're not bringing enough people to the table and saying, we're going we're gonna to voluntarily be transparent this time because we know that if we don't have the right incentives, we're not going to build the right products. So you mentioned a lot about transparency, mandating transparency, yeah. and transparency laws. And um, I think a bunch of lawyers have gathered here. And some of the research that we've discovered is that the creators of um, AI and machine learning algorithms don't can't even fully understand themselves now totally. what these algorithms are doing. Mm -hmm. And so then um, I think kind of an argument against regulation for consumer protection is that you would be prohibiting innovation on these companies if mm -hmm. you overregulate. Um, do you think innovation and regulation are, it's, it's false that we've been taught that they're dichotomous, you can't mm -hmm. have both? Or um, yeah, if I could ask for it. So actually, let's, so before we talk about the idea, there's kind of like two flavors of how we intervene on the internet. Let's add the third one. So like the first one was like, there's bad content, no bad content. Second one is like, well, why does some content get distributed and others don't? Like, let's be transparent on it. The third is, you may not do X. So it's kind of in the same vein as like, you may not have X, right? Um, when we write laws that say, here's the prohibited list of six things you can do on, on social media, um, uh, it's, it, it, it's not future proof. Like companies run around the gate. And, and I do think you can hurt innovation in those contexts. The kinds of things that are happening with the DSA are not like that. So the DSA is saying, hey, you can run wild and free, but as you learn things, you have to tell us about them. Like you can't be like Facebook and we can ask you for five years, are kids having trouble on Instagram? And you say, oh, we don't know, everything looks very mixed, right? When they had positive studies internally saying like, kids are saying, like literally it's like, children are using an addict's narrative to describe their usage, right? I hate using it, it makes me unhappy, I can't stop, if I leave I'll be ostracized, right? Like that's a huge dichotomy. But the secondary thing is, um, I always like to say transparency is actually about helping these companies be long-term happy, healthy, he healthy and happy, right? If, you ha if Facebook had to publish that random set of 10,000 posts every week since 2008, we would have something way closer to Facebook of 2008, right? That Facebook would have way more users 10 years from now if they were making decisions that were pro-social today. Or, or actually, I think Instagram's a great example. Instagram right now, they're trying to run after TikTok for a very simple reason. On tick, so before, people would watch Netflix and do Instagram. They would dual screen. TikTok, you have to literally push the next video forward. Like you don't get the next video unless you actively angry. You can't dual screen Instagram. And they're watching their stats fall. And because they're unwilling to accept that they might be 30% less profitable, but still here in five years, they're lighting on fire at the social graph. They're like, we're gonna copy TikTok. More transparency helps them make healthier long-term decisions, not optimize so much on the short term. Okay, we got one last question. Sure. Yeah, so uh, thanks Francis and Priya for this talk. Uh, so you said you're a data scientist, right? Mm -hmm. I'm an engineer. And so as you know, our technical training teaches us almost nothing other than you know, mm -hmm. math, physics, and coding, and so on. And so my question is, how do we get more of the data scientists and engineers and other technologists hmm. to care about and buy into the reality of the various harms that you discussed tonight and to take seriously these, these issues, the impact that technology and social media has on societies? Hmm. So this is a great question. Um, so in, I don't know, 
exactly how the college system is structured in Canada. But like in Europe, if you get accepted into a data science program, like an actuarial program, or into a computer science program, or like an IT school, um, you literally can't take classes in sociology. You can't yeah. take one in ethics unless it's offered in your college. Um, in the United States, it's almost that bad. Anything beyond your gen ed requirements that's outside of computer science makes it less likely you get hired at Google. And that's like a fundamental systematic problem we have to have conversations about because we are training people with ever closer to godlike powers who literally don't have basic context on, on, on the, the significance of the actions they're taking. I'm really lucky that I went to a brand new college called Olin, Olin College. It's like a, an experimental school for like developing an engineering curricula in, in Massachusetts. And when I graduated, I had the lightest weight engineering degree in the United States, unquestionably. And I took the minimum number of engineering classes I could to graduate, right? Um, but that meant I got to take a bunch of history classes, right? Like I'm a, I'm a Cold War studies minor, and I did my thesis on civil disobedience against civil defense. And I don't think I, don't think I would be on the stage today if I didn't know the history of civil disobedience in the 20th century, right? Like part of what made me feel confident that something could happen was that we overcame impossible things in the 20th century. Like the British left India. No one thought that was gonna happen 100 years before. No one in the world did. Apartheid ended. The Soviet Union fell. And part of why all those things happened was because someone out there was crazy enough to have hope. Like someone was out there crazy enough to believe the world could get better. And we don't tell our engineering students that. We tell them the only frame of reference is Y Combinator, and here's how you get to be a, a billionaire tech founder. That's, that's the thing that matters. And that steals both the opportunity to build some, some technologies that could really change people's lives, but might not be not as sexy. And it, and it means that we don't have those ladders for change. So we have to talk about that. We have to figure out how to actually change that in our engineering program, because we don't have space currently today to allow someone who does want broader context to get that context. So with that, I want to thank for the excellent questions and a huge thank you to Francis and Sabria for leading that conversation. Please give it up for them one more time and more time with us. I want to thank especially our presenting partners, iPolitics and Toronto Star tonight, event partners, friends of Canadian Broadcasting, many of whom are here tonight, uh, and the Center for Media Technology and Democracy. From the latter, I also want, if he can put up his hand, to acknowledge Taylor Owen, who helped put this on a lot and does a lot of important research. He's over there. Uh, follow his work. He's fantastic. And again, thank you to all of you for coming and being a part of this. It's the first event in the Canada 2020 studio rather than somewhere else since the little uh, plague began two and a half years ago. So it's great to see all of you in person. Um, and this is a room of people who are involved in this deeply in parliament, in government, in the industry, in learning about how we can make it better in advocacy or in actually engineering these tools for the better. I think the main reflection I had is that these tools are about finding each other, about finding out mm -hmm. more, more easily. And you've shown us a hopeful way that we can hopefully find the best in people instead of the worst a lot more often. Mm -hmm. So a big thank you again for this conversation and let's keep it going. Thanks for coming. Thank you.